It's the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway. Well, hi, and welcome to the Speedway Show. Today is part two of a conversation that we started previously with a uh, first-time author, and her name is Portia Tewabade. And Ms. Portia wrote the riveting book, During a Dry Season. I read the book. It was an excellent book. And for those of you who did not tune in last week, I encourage you to go to speedway.com and take a listen to the show, which was actually very, very good. And um, we are going to continue that conversation today. I am actually going to call... Uh, Ms. Portia right now because uh, I asked her to hang on when we did the pre-recording and didn't realize that when I ended the show, uh, it was going to hang up on her. So we're going to give her a call and see if we can catch up with Ms. Portia. So all my listeners, hang on a second. Let's see if we can track her down. Hello. And there she is. Hello, Miss Portia. This is Seaway. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm doing well. What about you? I'm doing quite well. So we are on the air, and I have to apologize because when we recorded that last show, I asked you to stay on, and I didn't realize that when I and when the show came to an end, it would hang up on both of us which is exactly what happened. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's okay. We reconnected, and that's the important thing. Yeah, so I had to call back in, and then I had to call you because I thought she's probably thinking, now what was that weird instruction about staying on the air? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did as I was told. That was one thing about me. If, if you tell me to do something, I'll do it. So I was there until I got the busy signal, and then I said, let me check my cell phone. So that's where we are now, on my cell phone. Uh, we are going to finish the conversation that we started, and it's just I am delighted by this conversation just because having lived in Zimbabwe, having lived in the U.S., I think it, it actually the book provided a very realistic view of what life might really be like for an American woman living in, uh, in this case, Nigeria. And I have to say I thought the characters in the novel uh, are incredibly vivid. And we talked a little bit about this in the first show where uh, you were talking about some uh, examples of where you drew from in in your real life and the people that you met along the way to, to create the character of the main protagonist, Garnett. Are there other people that you were able to draw from in creating the the other characters, like the husband, for example? I'm glad you asked that question because he is a composite of two, maybe three Nigerian men that I knew, one in New York and then two others in actually in Nigeria. His statue, his height, the fact that he was so tall and had such a commanding personality, the way he treated his wife, 
his uh, philandering, the fact that he had this mother who, even though he was a very tough guy, when it came to his mother, he wasn't so tough. So I saw that in some men, and I said, this is actually what happened to him at the end of the book is based on an actual story. So, oh, yes, Kaya Day. Yes, it's based on an actual story. So Kaya Day is really more of a composite than Garnett, his wife, is. Hmm. Well, and I have to say, as I read it, I, was, I could identify men that I know from home who I can say, oh, he's kind of like so-and-so. Oh, he's kind of like so-and-so. And there is a, I think, underlying his personality in particular was just a fundamental belief system about how to relate to women and the role of women, not just in a marital relationship, but in society too, right? Exactly. And it was inbred in him. And actually, I, I tried to make clear in the novel, Garnett, his wife did not see a lot of, of that until they were actually in his home. And then he became more of the person that he actually was. And when she, she didn't see it soon enough to do anything really about it to prevent some of the things that happened. So, yes, he too is really a composite. Well, and I think culture plays such a significant role in our lives because I have to tell you, um, I remember I had lived here. I I told you in the first show that that I was married to an African-American gentleman and we went home. And by the time we did, I had lived in the United States for, you know, well over a decade. And we get home and, and... and Zimbabwean culture is, I think, probably similar to Nigerian culture in terms right. of, you know, it's a very conservative culture, um, right. very male-dominated, and the role of women is, it's not that it's inferior to as much as it is, it's really different. And there is such a dividing line between what men should and can do and what women should and can do. So right. we went to get gas, and my husband was driving, and we get to the gas station. The guy comes around, and we don't have self-service, right? You have to have the gas pump for you. So the guy comes over. Right. He, my husband rolls down the window. The guy looks at my husband, assumes he's Shana, which is what I am, and right. he speaks to him in Shana and asks him how much gas he wants. Now, my husband doesn't understand a word, so he turns, he looks at me, I'm sitting in the passenger seat, so I tell the guy (laughs) in Shana how much gas we'd like to have. And so the guy doesn't acknowledge me at all, right? Exactly. So he Mm -hmm. acts like I don't even exist. He says to my husband, so would you like regular or unleaded? My husband looks at me, (laughs) and I lean over my husband, and I say, we would like unleaded, right? So the whole conversation, I cannot, the whole conversation was this guy looking at my husband and asking him question after question based on the answers that I was giving, and my husband's looking at me. So he's acting like, you know, we're at a tennis match, right? He looks at the guy, he looks at me, he looks at the guy, he looks at me. I lean over, and I'm <laughs> looking at the guy, and I'm telling him he never once looked at me. So he goes, he pumps the gas, 
And my husband is just bewildered, right? So he's like, what in the world was that about? And I'm just acting like, this is normal, right? (laughs) (laughs) The guy comes back, pumps the gas, comes back, and he says to my husband, uh, so that will be whatever the number was. I have the purse. (laughs) I pull out the money. So you pay. My husband, he hands it to this guy who hands the change back to my husband, thanks my husband, and we drive off. <laughs> that, that is so like what I remember. Totally. And so, the, but, but the thing that blew my husband away, aside from this guy's behavior, was the fact that by the end of this whole transaction, his name is James. So James is steaming. He is steaming because this guy never acknowledged me, and he didn't have the language to check him on it, and right, right. he can't believe that I don't mind because I'm not steaming. I'm just sitting there like, okay, so we're going to, and he's like, <laughs> how did that not just burn you? Why aren't you mad? And he's thinking, you know, because in his head I'm this independent woman and I'm, you know, self-sufficient and, you know, uh, modern, and he can't understand why it didn't bother me. And it never occurred to me actually to be offended, and I realized it was because that was just when I got home, I got back into my cultural mode, and that was just the way it was. It wasn't exactly. It wasn't strange. It was, you know, you can't wear pants as a woman when you go to the courthouse. They won't let you in. You have to kneel in order to serve the men, and you serve the men. That's right. All of that is sort of just the cultural fabric, and it doesn't matter how wrong your grandmama is, you love her, and you say, yes, ma'am, and you are polite because that's just the way it is. Exactly. It was a a funny thing because for me, I just realized, even after I'd lived here for that long, how strong those cultural influences were that I had grown up with. Yes, and you don't, you went back into it, like you said, without thinking. And because it's part and parcel of who you are. And that was what happened with Kaede. He didn't even understand what all the fuss was about in terms of Garnett <laughs> complaining. All he saw was complaining, complaining, complaining. And he did not realize this woman has, she's clueless. She doesn't know what's going on, and she's confused and frustrated. So he wasn't, he wasn't very understanding of, of what her problems were with the culture because for him, what problem? There wasn't any. <laughs> So part of his challenge, too, then, is also that he's got his family that's reinforcing his view that this woman is is out of line and she's acting kind of crazy, and they're looking at her as the outsider. Exactly. Exactly. So she wasn't, he he went home, which is what her grandmother tried to tell her. You are not going home. America is your home. But... She took it that the two of them were going home, and that was probably her first mistake. She didn't really understand (laughs) where she was going. And I have to say that I, too, was guilty of that. Now, that part of Garnett is definitely what I experienced, is that I thought, okay, I'm going home. I'm going back to Africa. Well, I wasn't there two weeks when I realized this isn't home. There's nothing, home is familiar, right? 
you recognize mm-hmm. home when you see it. But when I saw Lagos, I didn't recognize anything that reminded me of home. So it was mm-hmm. that realization that I wanted to bring out because I think African Americans and Africans and just all of us, we that's a part that sometimes we don't get. And I wanted to bring that out. Even though it's fiction, you know, fiction, I love it because uh, you can do with fiction what you want. You can make the characters mm-hmm. say what you want them to say. You can make them do what you want them to do. You can fix their circumstances, suit whatever you want to say. And so I just love messing with it, so, so to speak, to get the message across that it's not the way we sometimes think it is. Well, and I think we, on both sides, right, we glamorize the life that must exist on the other side. So on the one hand, if you're sitting in Africa, anywhere on the continent, you're thinking how wonderful life must be in the United States. If you're sitting in the United States, you're thinking about how lovely it would be to live in Africa someplace because surely it's like a homecoming and there's no racism and there's no bigotry and there's no this and that and how happy we would be then, right? (laughs) Exactly, and and it's not it's it's not like that at all. And I think that we need to we are holding as African Americans, and I can only say from my own experience, I held it. I held going back to Africa to impossible standards. Nobody could have met the standards. No country could have <laughs> met the standards that were in my head. And of my own making. So high. Exactly. So you know, you just have to. I think the more you know, the better it works. I think another thing I'm trying to point out too is that ignorance was at play here on both sides. Well, now, how long did you actually live in? You said you lived in Kaduna when you were there. So how long did you live there? I was in Kaduna two years. I was. Mm -hmm in uh, another, well, about two and a half years. And for about six or seven months, I was in a small place called Boko, which is a totally different environment from Kaduna. Kaduna is Muslim, predominantly Muslim. There are Christians there. A beautiful, beautiful city. I really love the city itself. Very clean, very well maintained. Did have a slum, but called Tundiwada, that was pretty bad. But for the most part, the city itself was just beautiful. Beautiful avenues, buildings, and the people dressed in the latest style. It was just really nice. Now, Boko, where I had lived previously, is actually another tribe altogether dominates there, and they are Christians. And very, it's like being in a small town. It was like going from a small town to a big city. And the people in Boko were called Teeth. And I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to anyway. The Teeth people were the most beautiful people I'd ever seen in my life. You could see somebody walking because Facially, statue-wise, they Mm -hmm. were gorgeous, gorgeous people. The men were as good-looking as the women. (laughs) And they didn't even, they didn't realize it themselves. 
And you would see somebody's picture in the newspaper and you would go, wow, that guy is good looking. Or you would see a woman walking down the street and you would say in another place and time she would be in front of a camera. And they, I don't know what it was about them that, that gave them that appearance. I had a girlfriend, uh, briefly I'll tell you this story, who was Yorba. She's married to a tease. And she didn't see what I saw either because she said to me once, I had not met her husband, she said, these girls, he taught at the university, these girls at the university are running after my husband. I don't know why they're running after him. He doesn't have money. He doesn't have fine car. He doesn't have anything. I make more money than he does. And so one day she was at my house and he came by to pick her up. This man looked like a young Harry Belafonte. So I looked at her. I know exactly why they're running after your husband. (laughs) I looked at her and I said, is she blind? (laughs) But to her, he was, you know, she just, she was just flabbergasted. She could not understand. So I tell that story often because I think it's just the funniest thing. And she and I were really, really good friends and she was just a wonderful person, but when it came to that, and very intelligent, spoke about four languages, but she couldn't see that. <laughs> she really couldn't. That is funny. Did you have a favorite character in the book? Yes, and I'm glad you asked that. My favorite character was the barrister. And you may oh. say, well, that's a man, and he's a polygamous man. And he doesn't have a whole lot of time for his family. The reason why I created the barrister was I wanted to show that the mother, the mother-in-law, Iyabo, wasn't as really as strong as she appeared to be when she was with her son and daughter-in-law. There was somebody stronger, and that was her husband, the barrister. And he had all this money, all these wives. This man was living the life without any apparent consequences for his action. And when my husband and I were in Nigeria, I would look around me sometime at some, because my husband is an engineer, and we were with people who were professionals, what they call the elite over there, and generals and whatnot, and I saw all this money, wine shipped in from Paris and all this kind of stuff going on, and these men, you never saw their wives. You only, When you went to a party, you only saw their girlfriends, and they were wearing these big brocade of bodders, these bodders, a long robe that they wear, and a hat on the head that looked very much like crowns to me on all of them. And they spawned to in with this beautiful young girl at the, on their side. And all of the men, depending on rank, you know, because there's rank within the men. And so depending on who he was, when he came, when he walked in, the men would take turns coming over to kneel down and greet him. And that was the barrister. He had that kind mm-hmm. of rank. So that people knelt in his presence. And I told wow. my husband, you know, I said to him one day, he thought it was really crazy. I said, I believe there's something called reincarnation. I'm a Christian, but I still believe that there's reincarnation. 
And when I die and come back, I'm coming back as a Nigerian man because they got the best of all possible worlds. And so the barrister is my favorite. He is the man I would come back as. Not not anybody else but the barrister. So and I and I kind of made him kind of lovable. Garnett, as you will recall, actually liked the barrister, even though he was polygamous, and he really didn't pay her much attention at all. But he was kind to her, and she was reaching out wherever she could find kindness. And I think that's why she liked him. And that's why I liked him, because he was kind to her. You touch on this question of polygamy. So in Zimbabwe today, polygamy is still legal. And I remember... You know, growing up in this day and age, even as a Zimbabwean, I really didn't pay that much attention to polygamy. It was sort of that thing that happened back when, you know, in historical times, and it didn't really affect me very much. Except then I see evidence of it all around me. So I've got an uncle who is, you know, in fact, he's my favorite uncle. He's a very successful lawyer. And he has, uh, we think, he has about, <laughs> last I counted, he had about six wives and 18 kids. Today. Wow. Uh, hello. Wow. And, so, and uh, you know, in our family, we've got this funny, it's kind of funny, we, call, we, we have these people that we call discovered cousins. And the discovered cousin is a cousin <laughs> who is the child of, you know, your uncle, like your first uncle, right, your, your, your mom or your dad's sibling. And the discovered cousin is one that you just discovered when you're, like, in your 20s or 30s. And they, too, are in their 20s or 30s. <laughs> and, oh, and you okay. did not realize that this kid was there all along and was born at about the same time that maybe you were born. And okay. so you sort of do the math and you go, wait a minute, but, but – but my cousin is just a few months older than this kid. So that exactly. means there were two women that were pregnant at the same time that this kid, you know, you know what I mean? So we call those discovered cousins. Now, the parents obviously have a very different view, right? So if you're the wife and you find out that your husband has a, a child that you did not know about who's about the same age as your first child, you have a very different reaction than the kids, right? So, but as the kids, exactly. oh, of course. And we're like, hey, cousin so-and-so, hey, cousin. Like, and we're happy because it just sort of adds to all the kids in the family and we get, to play, we get another playmate. But actually, I was surprised to find out what you captured in your book, that actually as prevalent as polygamy is and has been historically, the women have never liked it. And so I've got a I've got some uncles that I finally got old enough to ask about just out of curiosity at my mother's funeral, right? This is Uncle So and So. It's like, oh great. And then finally you kinda of go, How are we related exactly? Because you know, he looks just like my mama. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I just yes. can't quite put it together. And my mom says, Oh, these are my half siblings from my father's second wife and I'm like, You're <laughs> and oh yes, he had three, and I'm like, what? And so, <laughs> so my mother would tell the story of how you know her mom really disliked wife number two, and so her mom taught, and her mom had six kids, 
she taught all six of her kids to go over to the compound where number two lived, and they would dance around, and they were young. They didn't know better, right? So they'd dance around Second Wife's hut, and they would just sing these really offensive songs about how she mm-hmm. was a horrible woman and how she, and, and finally, ultimately, I think she, she left because of the hostility coming from the first wife and sort of all the things the first wife stirred up. But, you know, I'm listening to this drama, and I am now in my, you know, late 30s, early 40s, and I'm hearing this stuff for the first time. And I am just, you know, I'm just really fascinated at this whole new aspect of our culture and just to realize that the women have never liked it as long as it's been accepted, as long as it's been prevalent. They never um, do. No woman, no, they never like it. My, my uncle's first wife, in fact, I don't think she's even the first wife. She's a wife who showed up after, I think there was a divorce or two before her. But she, mm-hmm. part of the reason we don't really know how many kids and how many wives there are is because she doesn't like it. So everything's underground, right? <laughs> exactly. And I mean, what I used to see in like, what I used to see in Nigeria is that the man would die and there would be five, six obituaries in the paper for him and each one of his wives would post her own obituary. Some of the wives were known, some of them, I mean, you could see three, four pages of obituaries for Chief, (laughs) Dr. So-so and so, and you go, and each one would list her children and have a picture of him. So this might go on for a while after his death, (laughs) and actually, I had a friend uh, who's, uh, husband took another wife, and mm-hmm. at his death, she was African American. She and the wife got together to bury him. She and the second wife got together to bury him. Now, I don't know if you know. Uh, in this country, we have something called outside children, common law wives, and outside children. Well, and I, I, I knew about the common law wife. I didn't know about the outside children. The outside children. Well, the, we call them outside children. The wife, the the legal wife, doesn't know about this other wife. The outside a children. girlfriend. Mm-hmm. It might be a girlfriend that the man has taken. So in African American mm-hmm. culture, we call them these children that you were talking about. Uh, yep. The the cousins. They are the equivalent of outside children. And I had cousins who had whose husbands had outside children. And the children would just show up one day, or the wife yep. would stumble upon the evidence. So it's not legal the way it is over there, because you, as you well know, and this was what Garnett was afraid of. Really, they had a, her husband was philandering, but once he had someone pregnant, the, through native law and custom, as they call it in Nigeria. That was automatically his wife. That's right. He had to marry her. Yes. And he could have as many as he wanted or could afford. So here she was coming from a young girl, coming from New York, and having to deal with polygamy, something that Kayade had told her in the beginning that she wasn't going to have to deal with, that he didn't believe in it. 
And lo and behold, his true colors come out when he gets home. So she was under a great deal culturally. And then on the other hand, I think she did not understand African culture and they did not understand African American culture. And so you had... And there was a... Go ahead. You had cultural conflict on both sides. That's what I was going to say. But you were going to and add... An, I was going to say there's an element of denial, right? So you talked in the first yeah. show about how some of your readers would sort of say, oh, wow, she should have stood up for herself. I can't believe she took that. But, you know, I remember the time of strife in her town, and her husband had told her not to go out into the town because there were these kids who were, you know, running around and they were basically vandalizing uh, the city and they were beating people up. And she the had this idea. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so she had this idea that, you know, it was sort of this denial that it couldn't possibly happen to me because why? I am an American. And if they come exactly. to me, I was going to tell them that I am an American because in this country, you could never conceive of that happening to you. And you sort of have this idea that, you know, this might be y'all strife here, but I am not really a part of it. This is not my issue. And that's exactly what happens. She's, she's caught out there and she tries yes. to assert her self as an American, and they're like, whatever, and they proceed to beat her up anyway. Exactly, because it didn't mean anything to them, you know. So who cares that that you are an American? And you remember over and over in the book, people would say to her, this is not America, this is Nigeria. And even her husband said to her, "Do you, you don't really know where you are, do you? You still haven't figured out where you are. And up till almost the end, she really didn't know. And she thought she could just sashay around in the midst of of a riot and not it not touch her. So naive. I mean, she was really <laughs> she she real. And I think when people read about her, I I hope they wonder at her ignorance and mm-hmm. say to themselves that if I go to another country and go amongst the culture. First of all, I'm going to find out as much about it before I leave home as I can. And secondly, when I get there, I'm going to keep my eyes open and try to understand the whys as well as the whats. And when I put those two together, I'll have a better understanding and in that way we'll be able to cope. I I know of some people who went to West Africa as a group and they were at my house talking about it, and some of them said that they were packing sardines, they were packing tuna fish, crackers, uh, <laughs> tins of different foods because they were not going to eat that food over there. And I remember thinking, you should stay at home because mm-hmm. you can eat sardines and tuna fish over here. You don't need to go that far to eat that. So just to have an open mind, I think, is important. The book takes an unflinching look, as we talked about in the first show, at Nigerian culture. And in a uh, very flattering review, Kirkus Reviews say this, It's refreshing to see even a fictional story of an African-American woman's experience in Africa 
Many of Garnett's Brooklyn friends romanticize the continent as the motherland, but she discovers that it brings her none of the comforts of home. So at the end of the day, what is the underlying message or statement that you would make to your readers about this experience that we essentially enjoy through Garnett's eyes? Well, just what I just said, that culture is to be respected no matter where you find it, not only to respect African culture, but for Africans as well to respect African-American culture. And I think that when it ta- it's also another theme that runs through the book. It's, it's a love story. It really is. And the whole idea of betrayal and what a woman has to do or should do in the face of betrayal. We all know what we think we would do. But actually when it's on us, the way it was on Garnett, what would we do? And where do we find the strength to triumph in spite of it? So looking at a woman like that, like Garnett, and sympathizing with her and trying to to reflect on whether how you would act and if you've ever seen a woman in that situation, exactly what did she do? In the book I say um, she knew deep down in her heart that he was he was betraying her. It was mm-hmm. when he was a, he was about to put it out there so everybody knew that she felt she had to do something. And is that the moment that all women act when it's about to be known? Because they say the wife is always the first to know. So is that when you act, when it's troubling you because other people know? And um, I think that it's a good read. I really appreciate uh, your very positive comments about during the dry season. I've heard that from others as well who have read it that said they kept turning the pages because, as you use the term riveting, it kept their attention throughout. It is a very good read. And I hope that the readers would get a sense of what living in West Africa feels like. I completely agree. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book is that, you know, Garnett, the protagonist, is such a complex character, right? So on the one hand, she was brave to follow her husband to his home country knowing no one there. I mean, forget about for a minute this idea she had about how great it was. But, you know, she's still going to a whole different country. She doesn't know anybody right. except her husband. And she was, and she was a romantic, you know, albeit a suspicious one, yes. right? <laughs> right. She was. She really was. You're right. But she was also, as you said, she was an astute businesswoman, and she she knew how to survive. She was. She knew how to scrap, right? So anybody, right. you know, threatened her in her mind, she was like, "Oh, bring it on! I've been in the fight, and I can leave yes. you behind." Uh, exactly. so on the one hand, I loved that about her because she was like, I can handle anything, including her husband when, when things went started to go really, really wrong. But right, on the right. other hand, she's addicted to food, she's addicted to alcohol, 
she's clearly yeah. she she obviously as as the alcohol takes over you can hear in the observations of her friends and in the descriptions that she is getting really sloppy about her appearance exactly what were the emotions that you wanted to evoke about her in your readers well first of all i wanted them to sympathize with her you know, as you're writing, they say you write characters that people like. And I think that people sometimes like people that they can sympathize. They can understand their situation or empathize. She was she was infertile. She had, like you just said, some substance abuse problems. She wasn't even trying. Well, she did try to keep herself together but she was totally unsuccessful. A couple of times she tried to get her hair done and fix up a little bit, and then it was like she was in a depressive funk, and she couldn't Mm -hmm. keep herself together. So I wanted them to look at how she was just going downhill, and she was infertile in a country where children are gold. She had hostile in-laws and a philandering husband. Then I wanted to invoke, anger and frustration at her for being too passive. And I wanted them to say, as some people have told me, get up and do something about your situation. And also in their anger, recognize her as a woman that they might know. They Maybe they have a cousin or an auntie or someone who's like Garnett and maybe have some honest discussions about women that behaved as she did. And then also fear, because fear is what would drive the reader to keep turning the page. Okay, okay, what's going to happen to this lady next? What in the mm-hmm. end is going to be her fate? You know, So that fear will drive them to keep reading. And then pride and happiness for what she's able to accomplish in spite of. She had a money-making business. She had worked that system. She was bribing everybody in sight, <laughs> and she was raking in the cash and stashing some away. So, hello, she might be downtrodden when it comes to her love life, but when it comes to her business life and taking care of herself like that, she was she was on top of her game. And also, let's not forget the switchblade. And I won't say more about the switchblade, but let's not forget it. She knew how to use it. Well, well, and and the other thing that I the the the, th- the place where I stopped just sort of reading out of curiosity and really turning pages was the point where you know when you describe the story on the uh, back cover of, of the book. You talk about mm-hmm. she's pushed. She's pushed into telling a really, really big lie. And yes. I won't say what yes. the lie was, yes. but there was such palpable pressure on her, and you could you could immediately see why she told it and what drove her to lie. But yes. you knew she was going to be found out. Sooner or later, yes. it was going to come out. And and the yes. point at which I could not stop turning the pages was when I was trying to figure out how was this going to come out and what was going yes. to happen when this lie came to light and was she going to still be alive at the end of it? <laughs> exactly. Because you knew telling a lie like that she might not be. And I will tell yeah. you, that is a very curious thing, too, because, you know, 
I don't, when I write, I don't plot. I just let whatever. I know what, I know the, the basic story, but I don't, some some writers make outlines and they they do storyboards and all of that. I don't do that. That, what happened at that point in the story just came out of nowhere. And it when it came, it just came out and said, huh, where did this come from? Do I want to use this? And then it just kept writing itself. That whole section wrote itself almost in terms of the rust draft. Of course, I had editors and I edited myself, but mm-hmm. that was that part was amazing to me because I didn't know where it came from. It certainly wasn't in my right. head when I started. I'm going to say maybe it was divinely inspired because it, it maybe. turned me to <laughs> <laughs> It may be. Because once she did that, you said, okay, now, i got to see how this is going to turn out because she's already oh, yeah. put her foot in it. Yeah. <laughs> it is on now. It is on with yeah. the family. It is on with the husband. It is on with everybody who's ever wanted to hang something on her, and how on earth is she going to get out of this one? That was what exactly. I was thinking. So I was like, ooh, it's about to come. <laughs> <So> anyway. <laughs> Marcia, thank you so much for coming to the Speedway Show. So tell us, how do we get this book that hopefully, if you're listening to this show, you are just now like, I have got to get a copy of this book. What was, uh, what on earth did she lie about? Did, well, you know, she may, she may have survived. Did she survive intact? Did she not survive intact? Exactly. Did everybody survive? Did everybody not survive? And that's all I'm going to leave you with. <laughs> but well, Marcia, tell you. us where people can get this book. They can get this book uh, for hard copy and Kindle, for their Kindle, on Amazon. And uh, they can order it on Amazon. And they can also get it on Barnes & Noble. I think Barnes & Noble is called The Nook. So they can get it on those two two websites and order it there. Um, I'm hoping... Uh, eventually to get it into libraries, but at this time it's not really available. So I would suggest that you go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble, and I uh, they will send you copy at the speed at which you know Amazon. If you want it in two days, you can get it in two days. So you mm-hmm. just specify how long you know how long you want to wait for it, and uh, I hope that in in purchasing it, everyone will enjoy it because that was really my intention in writing was an enjoyable read for everyone. It was. Well, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Listeners, visit the posting on com to purchase your copy of the book during a dry season. And you will also find the links to... Um, the uh, if you want to purchase it from Barnes and Noble, if you want to purchase it from Amazon, and you'll also see uh, some uh, uh, critiques that have been written about the book, and I hope that you enjoy it as well as I do. Portia, thank you so much for joining me today again on the Speedway Show. You are welcome, and I sincerely appreciate this opportunity. It has really been a pleasure. Thank you. I- did I not tell you we were going to have fun? <laughs> yes, you did. And I mean, I relaxed and I've enjoyed myself. And, and I'm surprised so at how much pleased. fun I've had. Yes. There you go. Well, good. I am glad. So, listeners, that is all we have for the show today. 
Until next week, this is BOA saying thank you for listening in. Go in peace and read during a dry season. Thank you for joining us on The Speedway Show. Visit thespeedwayshow.com for content and other episodes. Join the fan page at facebook.com slash thespeedwayshow. And follow Speedway on Twitter at the handle thespeedwayshow. Until next week, live well, live fully, and love deeply.